And God, we just say that. And I just invite you, wherever you are this morning, wherever you're listening, I just invite you to say out loud, God, you are good. Even if it feels awkward, sometimes it's just a power in just saying, in a tough time, saying, God, you are good. Saying out loud, God, we want you to be the center of our life. We want our life to revolve around you, God, not all the other things that could grab our attention. God, we want you to be the king, the one who directs our steps, the one who guides us. God, today and forevermore, Jesus, you are good. You are beautiful. And this morning, God, we give all of who we are to you. It is in your name your powerful and beautiful name that we pray this morning. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Awesome to be with you guys this morning. Uh, thank you guys so much this morning for leading us. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Tony. I have the privilege of being here on staff at Wellspring. Uh, we're continuing our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been in it for a while. We're in chapter 14 today. <laughs> we're almost at the end. You know, it's exciting, actually. It's been a really cool journey. Uh, so last week we were in 13, uh, right? 14, 13. So last week we were in 13. We're talking about love, right? This is Paul's famous love passage, often shared at weddings and on greeting cards. And what we're going to do today is transition from that love passage into Paul's words about corporate worship, because the thing is, there's not a lot of love in Corinth, right? They're so focused on a specific spiritual gift called the gift of tongues or the gift of languages that they've lost track of what does it look like to love one another? What does it look like to build the church up? Now, over the last few weeks, I've mentioned this idea of the gift of languages or the gift of tongues a few times, but I haven't really gone into much detail. So I thought I'd maybe start this morning with a little bit of like explaining like, so what is this thing, the gift of languages, the gift of tongues? Because I realize for many of us, this could feel very cross-cultural. I remember for me, I was uh, in college, I was a senior in college, and this guy named Jeremy joined our campus fellowship. And Jeremy was all about this idea of speaking in a spiritual language. And he was telling us all like, hey guys, you know, seriously, if you don't speak in a spiritual language, you're probably not really that spiritual. You know, he thought all of us should do it. If we were truly followers of Jesus, you know, we should be able to do it. Jeremy even wanted to kind of like train us a little bit, like teach us how to do it. Now, for me, that was just so cross-cultural, and it took me a while to figure out, okay, where is Jeremy coming from? And what does the Scripture actually have to say about these spiritual languages that Paul refers to in chapter 14? Now, one thing I want to say is Paul says, right, in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, that there are many types of tongues or language gifts. He doesn't explain a lot in 1 Corinthians what exactly these look like. seems to me uh, there's a number in the New Testament, but I want to highlight three this morning. Now, the first language gift is actually being able to speak a human language. We see this in Acts 2 at Pentecost, right? Jesus ascends to be with the Father, and He says, I'm going to promise, you know, I'm going to come with you, right? I'll, I'll be with you. And what does He do? Right? He sends 
the Trinity, where he sends the Holy Spirit to come and be with the disciples. He arrives on the scene, the Holy Spirit arrives on the scene, and what's the first thing to do? They start speaking in other languages. That's one of the, the miracles of Pentecost. But what's so unique about it is it's during Passover, right? All these pilgrims have come from all over the world, speaking all kinds of languages, right? They've come from North Africa. They've probably come, you know, from East and West, just everywhere. They're converging in Israel, in Jerusalem. And then these disciples start speaking in languages that they don't know. And all these pilgrims start to hear the disciples speaking in their own language. It says, right, they hear them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God, Acts 2.12. Right, so the Holy Spirit shows up. The disciples speak in languages that they do not know. And then people from around the world, what? They hear the gospel preach, right? And this is one way to understand the gift of languages, right? It's used to extend the message of the gospel across cultures. But these are actual human languages that God gives so that someone can understand across a culture. Now, I haven't personally seen that in action. Now, another type of language gift might be called like a prayer language, right? This is kind of what Jeremy was doing in my college fellowship. Every time we got into a prayer space, Right? He would start speaking these words that I did not understand. Everyone else was speaking English, and Jeremy started speaking these other languages. I mean, it was a way for him to pray to God. Now, it's possible. This is what Paul is referring to in Romans 8.26. Right? He says, when you don't know what to pray, right, sometimes the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that are too deep for words. I mean, Paul might be saying, sometimes, right, the Spirit intercedes for us with words that we don't understand, right, as in a language gift. I think that's one way to look at uh, Romans 8.26. But I want to say this, if you contrast this to the first example, it's really different, right? This is not about furthering the mission by overcoming language barriers, right? It's about speaking to God in prayer. This is actually the most common language gift uh, in the church. I, I have seen this happen a number of times. You know, you go into a, a prayer space and someone just is kind of talking to God in this other language. More common, I would say, than the first. Now, a third way that the gift of languages can kind of manifest in a church environment is God can give a word in an unknown language, but its intended audience is the church body. This isn't an individual just talking to God. Right, this word is meant for the congregation, right? so I just called it a congregational language. But the thing is here, right, the language has to then be interpreted. Right? So if God is trying to communicate to the church body in an unknown language, then what's required is someone to interpret that word so that they can understand it. Now this doesn't happen a ton at Wellspring, but I was talking with our friends at Christian Memorial Tabernacle. This is, you know, Pastor Gaskins and Elder Sims, and they were saying, right, they use our building. We did a shared worship time a little bit ago, uh, and, you know, they were saying this actually happens pretty common for them, or God will give them a word. And what happens organizationally is that person will get a word, then they will go to the pastor and say, hey, pastor, like, what do you think? Is this for the congregation? And the pastor says, yes, what they'll do is they'll share the word, and then everyone will be silent. And they'll just listen, 
and see. Maybe God will speak to them, right? And then they'll share that word to the congregation. But the silence allows people to interpret, right? So those are three different ways that the gift of languages can function in the New Testament. Now, what we'll see as we enter chapter 14 is that Paul is primarily talking about these last two types of language gifts. And he's trying to help the Corinthians as they gather for worship to focus on order and intelligibility. You see, the Corinthians are so focused on these language gifts that they show up to the larger gathering and they just sort of pop up like popcorn and randomly in a room and just start sharing words that no one understands. Imagine it for a second, right? Amy's up here singing, and then someone just pops up in a pew and just starts speaking in a language that no one understands. And Amy's like, you know, be the center, you know, and then she tries to like get back on, you know, right? And then she's like, you know, you are good. And then someone else pops up and starts speaking, Right? And it just happens throughout the service. I'm mid-sentence and then someone else pops up and just throughout the service, people are just interrupting in language that no one understands. I think Paul is saying, hey guys, this is incredibly distracting. Clearly this isn't loving either, right? It's about being the center of attention regardless. Regardless of whether anyone can understand you. Have you ever been in a meeting where people are just sort of like waiting to say what they need to say, right? So everyone's there. They've stopped listening to each other, and they're just waiting for a time to speak. I I have to admit, I have been that person once or twice. But everyone stops listening. All they're trying to do is say their piece, and it's like it never works. Now imagine they're doing that, but in a language that no one else can understand. That's a window into first century Corinth. And this is why Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 5. Pursue love. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up. The one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who speaks, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. All right, so transition-wise, what Paul is doing here is he's transitioning from chapter 13, which is about the way of love, right? And the Corinthians and their desire to use their spiritual gifts during the church service. And Paul's like, that's awesome. I love that you want to use your gifts, but how we use our gifts, it matters. Right? They want to stand up, interrupt each other, because they think they sort of highlights their spiritual authority, right? If I speak in a tongue, everyone will look at me and be like, oh, that guy is really spiritual. Right? Paul's helping, trying to help them see, but that's not loving. Right? Paul, is trying, Paul is trying to help them see, right? That if you want to speak to God in a prayer language, example number two earlier, that's great. But that's not the same as speaking in an unknown language during church when no one knows what you're saying. 
right? If you want to share a, your tongue, your prayer language, that's fine. Make sure you have an interpreter. Why? So that people know what you're saying, so the church can be built up. Right? This is why Paul contrasts this idea of the gift of languages with prophecy. Right? Because in the New Testament, prophecy is not primarily about future prediction. Like, in five days, this is going to happen. But articulating what does God have to say to His people? What is the fresh and new and thing that God wants to say to His people today? Now, this is sort of conjecture, but one of the reasons I think Paul emphasizes this idea of prophecy over, let's say, teaching uh, is very contextual. So, what does the prophet do? The prophet declares what is new or fresh. And if you think about it, like in the New Testament, they didn't, one, in Corinth, they didn't have a New Testament, right? They didn't have 2,000 years of theology. They didn't have unlimited libraries of books, right? The Gutenberg hadn't invented the printing press, right? So, most of them didn't even have access to a Bible that they could read at home. The prophet was so necessary to declare the fresh new thing that God was doing, right? They had the Old Testament, but they needed someone to speak into their everyday life. What is really going on now? Right? The teacher is awesome, but the teacher primarily explains. Right? So the teacher takes the New Testament. The teacher takes 2,000 years of church history. The teacher takes all these books, condenses them, and then explains, this is how we think God works. Right? The prophet speaks to what is fresh and new going on in a local body. And Paul is saying, hey, guys, Corinth, it's much better to listen to the intelligible words of a prophet than the unintelligible words of your language gifts. Right? This is Paul's primary concern. How is the church built up? Right? The Corinthians, they want to stand up, they want to get attention, they want to speak in an unknown language because this reveals how spiritual they are. But Paul is more concerned about building up the church. He uses the word to build up, upbuilding, and edification, where wherever you get the word edifice, which again, connected to building, seven times in this chapter. Now, if you think back, in chapter 12, Paul says, right, the gifts are meant for the common good, right? They're meant to build up the body, right? This is why Paul values prophecy and teaching more than tongues, especially if the language cannot be interpreted. I also want us to notice, though, that at the beginning of chapter 14, Paul tells everyone to pursue prophecy. There's actually zero restrictions here based on gender or other criteria. And this fits in the larger arc of the Scriptures, right? In the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are female and male prophets. Miriam, Moses' sister, is called a prophet in Numbers 12. Interestingly, when uh, King Josiah... When he finds the book of the law, right, that had been lost, when he finds it, the prophet Jeremiah is a famous prophet at that time. Josiah doesn't go to Jeremiah, right? He goes to a prophet named Huldah, a female prophet in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, at Pentecost, when Peter preaches that what God is up to in this new church that God is doing, what does he say, right? He quotes Joel, your sons and daughters will prophesy. And this turns out to be true, right? Philip has four daughters who are prophets. And in 1 Corinthians 11, right, Paul says, right, there were male and female prophets in Corinth, and he encourages them both to use their gifts during the church service. So Paul isn't saying very clearly at the beginning of 14, right, and through 12, 
that women have these gifts, men have these gifts. Right? But everyone is supposed to use the gifts they have been given to build up the church. And then in 6 through 11, right, Paul reinforces this idea. I'm not going to read through these verses, but I'm just going to give a quick summary. Basically, he offers three analogies. The first is from music. Right? To play a song and have it recognized, you need to play certain notes. Right? So if, if the band had come up here and I had said, pick a song right, randomly in your head and then just start playing, none of us would be able to recognize that song. But this is exactly what's happening in Corinth. They're all standing up, speaking their own language, and no one understands what's going on. The second analogy is from the military. Paul talks about sort of the bugle or the trumpet, that you blow it, right, and it calls the troops. It directs them in conflict. Now, if you say something that no one understands, how can the church come together and respond to the call of God? The third analogy is from foreign languages. Paul's like, hey, you know, if you don't speak the same language as someone else, it doesn't really work. Now, I've been to a number of countries, and I, I often do this sort of similar thing where I, I learn just enough of the language to, like, ask for directions, and I always get into the same issue. I go up to someone, I'm lost, I speak in, like, really bad Italian or Spanish or Turkish or Greek or whatever, Kiswahili. I go up there, I speak it, and I think, okay, I'm going to get directions. And then they just, like, go on, and they just start speaking, and I have no idea what they're saying. Anyone ever been there? Yeah, right? Like someone's talking, you have no idea what they're saying, and then you walk away from them thinking, I was trying to get directions, I have to ask someone else. Like, I have no idea what they just said. Right? And this is why Paul writes in verse 19, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Right? Because for Paul, the primary value of communication at the large church gathering is edification. It's building up, right? Five words versus 10,000. Now, up to this point, the text is actually pretty, pretty straightforward. It gets, a little, it gets a little tricky in verses 20 to 25. I'm going to read them, uh, and then we'll kind of, we'll, we'll explain it. All right, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. Even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are assigned for believers, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is assigned not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will not say, will they not say that you are out of your mind? And if all prophecy and an unbeliever outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God rather and declare that God is really among you. Now, I think big picture we get what Paul's saying, but it's kind of tricky because in verse 22, he writes that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. And then in verses 24 to 25, he seems to suggest that prophecy not tongues, is what actually helps believers come to know, or unbelievers come to know God. And this feels like it could be a contradiction, right? How can tongues be for unbelievers, 
but prophecy actually is the thing that helps unbelievers come to know God. It feels like, what's going on there? Now, the center of trying to unravel this really centers around this quote that Paul has of Isaiah 28, verses 11 and, two, 11 and 12. Now, Isaiah 28 is in a particular context. And what's happened in Isaiah is that the surrounding rulers around Israel have decided that rather than trusting in the word of the prophets that are declaring to them, hey guys, you should turn to Yahweh, they have decided, okay, we're going to trust in Egypt for our safety and our provision. And then what Isaiah says is, henceforth, because you have decided to trust in Egypt and not Yahweh, the words of the prophets spoken to you are going to be like gibberish, like tongues you cannot understand. And when this happens, when those words become like gibberish, this is a sign of God's judgment, that you're no longer listening. So in this way, tongues becomes a sign for unbelievers because they hear it and don't understand it, just like the the people surrounding Israel heard it and didn't understand it. And Paul's making a, a comparison there saying tongues are for unbelievers, but not that they are a sign that leads them to God, but they are a sign that reveals their heart's posture about God. Now, if you don't get that, if that's like, I have no idea what you just said, Tony, don't stress about it. Paul's main point is this. Prophecy and teaching are way more helpful, right? Though Paul writes that prophecy is for the church, this doesn't mean that it can't also bring clarity to people who are outside of the church. In fact, this is what Paul exactly says in 24 and 25. What happens? Someone from outside the church comes in and they hear a word of prophecy that they can understand. What happens? They're convicted. The Holy Spirit moves, right, in them through those words, and they realize, oh, man, something's off, right? Paul says, the secrets of their hearts are disclosed. They see themselves clearly maybe for the first time in relationship to God and other people. And as a result, right, this person who hears the Word of God clearly declared falls on his face and worships God. And then he looks out at the gathered community and he's like, man, God is really among you. Again, Paul here is emphasizing prophecy. Now, if, he just, if that unbeliever or that person outside the church came in and heard everyone speaking in tongues, they might just assume that the church is just another kind of like mystery cult to Dionysus or some other Greco-Roman god. Because in the ancient world, especially in Greek religion, it was common for people to be caught up in these fits of ecstasy. So when Paul says, they're going to come in and see you're out of your mind, he's not saying they're going to think you're crazy. They're going to think that you're just like these other Greco-Roman religions where people do these weird things that don't make sense. Right? So the onlooker would just assume the church is just another option in a pluralistic religious market. But when they actually hear the prophet declare the truth of God, then they're convicted. Gordon Fee, he's this great New Testament scholar here, writes this awesome quote, which I really appreciate. He says this, No wonder the Corinthians preferred tongues. It not only gave them a sense of being more truly spiritual, but it was safer. Think about it. 
They go in there, they speak a tongue, they feel like, oh man, I am so spiritual. And then the next person speaks a tongue. So it's not like it challenges their behavior. So they get to have this experience of feeling like they're really spiritual and they get to have total control because they just kind of get to do what they want. The problem is in Corinth, as a result of this, no one is growing. No one is being transformed. No one is being convicted. No one is falling in their face in worship of God because they don't know what each other are saying. They don't get to have sort of the errors, the sin, the habits that are sort of destructive in their lives. The rhythms that keep them stuck are not surfaced, are not revealed by the convicting Word of God. They get control. They get to feel like they're awesome. But in the end, they are not transformed. And Paul knows this. And he knows that the only way to help the Corinthians is not simply to give them abstract ideas, but actually give them concrete practices that will shift their cultural system the way they do Sunday morning, the way they do their church gathering. This is why he tells them in 26 through 33 very concrete things. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue... Let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God, right? Prayer language. If two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh in what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be what? Silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets, spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. All right, so Paul's really concrete here. If you want to speak in a tongue, great. Make sure there's an interpreter. Otherwise, be quiet. Sit down, listen, learn. Right, if you want to speak to God in a prayer language, do so quietly. Stop interrupting everyone. And he says the same thing to the prophets. Hey guys, gals, stop all talking at the same time. If someone is talking, listen to them. Right? How revolutionary. Right? Listen to one another. Stop interrupting. Stop talking over one another. Why? Paul wants the gifts in the body to build up the body. He believes this is what God wants, right? God is not a God of confusion. He wants peace and transformation among his people. Now, if you've read ahead, uh, you'll know that 34 and 30, verses 34 and 35 are a bit controversial. So we're actually going to spend most of next week, actually all of next week, focused on 34 and 35 and another verse like it in the New Testament. It requires a much deeper dive. So I'm just going to do a reading of it, and then we're gonna, I'm going to do a quick take but just trust me, next week we're going to spend a lot more time on it. This is what Paul writes. Don't hold your breath. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. All right. So, again, next week we're going to do a deep dive here. If you're like, what? I cannot believe Paul said that. Take a deep breath, 
It's important. Let me just say a couple things. One, Paul has already said in the body of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 11, that female prophets can speak during the church service. He has encouraged everyone at the beginning of chapter 14 to encourage or to seek out and eagerly, eagerly desire prophecy. Right? So he's already said that. So if now Paul says, be silent, never speak again, he's contradicting himself. Two, he has already told two distinct groups of Christians in Corinth to be silent already in this chapter. One, people are speaking in tongues. He says, hey, be silent. Unless you have a word to offer or an interpretation of that word, be silent. He's told the prophets, be silent. So then the question is, why is he saying that to a specific gender group? And we'll get into this way more next week. There's a, there's a reason. So contextually, what's happening in Corinth is that the women are asking all kinds of questions during the service. They're talking, they're asking questions, and it's interrupting things. Remember, this is in a home environment where the women are almost certainly serving. They're coming in and out. They're wondering, wait, so what just happened? What's going on now? They're talking as this is happening, and Paul's like, hey, ladies, as a gender, because you guys have a specific role in the first century, right, in the household, he's saying to them, as a gender, because they have a very unique way that they are contributing to the, the service at that point, he's saying, hey guys, can you stop asking questions right now? If you want to learn, and guess what? I want you to learn, which, by the way, is revolutionary in the first century, right? In much of Corinth, most husbands would have thought their, their wives incapable of learning. So, totally different thing. Paul is saying, it is good for you to learn, which is revolutionary. We'll get to it next week. Paul is not making this universal commandment, right? Women can never talk, sing, pray, teach during a church service, right? Because if you actually take this literally, what that means is as soon as a woman enters into the, the worship environment, she literally cannot talk. This isn't teaching on the platform, this isn't, uh, you know, praying in front of everyone or leading worship. This is literally silence. Is that what Paul really means? Well, I'll tell you this. I have literally never been to a church. I'm sure one exists in the world where this is actually taken literally. I have never been to a church that actually implements that. And there's a reason for it. There's all kinds of cultural things going on that give us a different window into what Paul is saying. Again, more next week. Please Hang in there. We'll get to it. Um, big picture. Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 14 to the Corinthians, hey guys, everyone needs to be heard. We want everyone to be understood. Because of that, there needs to be order during the service. Right? He's trying to help the Corinthians focus a little bit less on the gift of tongues and more on the building up of the church body. Right, this is why he ends in verses 39 and 40 with, So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. And do not forget speaking in tongues. Forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. For Paul, right, this is an expression of love. It's how the church is built up. Right, when we use our gifts to edify, to uplift and encourage one another, what happens? Right, the body grows. This is good. 
But the Corinthians have turned the Sunday morning gathering, right, the, the communal gathering into this gift display, disconnected from helpfulness, from the common good. And Paul's wanting them to get back on track. He wants the church to be built up. Why? So that people know Jesus. So that the church is actually transformed. It actually grows, not simply stagnates, doing their own thing, but they grow. That the church grows into Jesus' image. Right, so then the question is, how does this then relate? How does this translate? How does this hit the ground right, in our context? Now, I thought maybe it might be helpful just to start with like, all right, so what do we do with all these things about the language gifts or speaking in tongues? Like, what do we do with that? Because in the modern world, at least in my experience, there seem to be like two camps here. One is kind of like the Jeremy, right, in my college campus, who was like, everyone needs to speak in tongues, right? If you don't speak in tongues, you're not spiritual. Have you really received the Holy Spirit? Right? And then on the other side, you have these people that are just like, well, this is weird. Like, let's not do that. Like, let's ignore spiritual gifts and how they might come up, right? And you have these two sides, and they don't really talk to each other. But if I was going to give three tips about tongues, the first would start with this. I think it's just important that we recognize that not everyone will have a language gift. Like, isn't that the point of 1 Corinthians 12? We are a body. Right? The body has different parts. Each part has a different thing to offer. Right? This is true of all spiritual gifts. Everyone has some gifts. Nobody has every gift. Right? This is true of tongues and every other gift in the New Testament. Because what does this mean? This means that as a body, we need each other. Right? If we all could have every gift, right, then we wouldn't need each other as a body. The second thing I would say is this, right? Tongues are not bad. Paul says very explicitly, even though he's pretty negative in chapter 14 about tongues and how they're actually manifesting in Corinth, he also says in verse 39, do not forbid speaking in tongues. He knows he's coming across pretty hard. And so he's saying to them, hey, I get it. I'm coming across pretty hard here. Hey, guys, like, don't forbid it, though. Don't, don't hear in my words that you need to stop speaking in tongues. Right? God gives gifts, and all those gifts are great. If he gives it to you, awesome. Third, I just want to say as a church, right, as Wellspring, as a particular and contextual expression of God's kingdom in this place, we don't control what gifts God gives us. Right? God is the one who gives gifts to the church. So that what happens is each church, church has a unique way that they receive the gifts and a unique way that they sort of uh, embody the gifts in real time, contextually. So it makes sense that a church like Christian Memorial Tabernacle, right, that I referenced earlier, would have a different way that they relate to the gifts than we do. God gives different gifts to different bodies. Right? This is why like teaching someone to speak in tongues, like, oh, we should speak in tongues more, is sort of odd. Like, do you teach someone to do it? No, no, no. Is it a gift of God? God gives the gift. Our role is to receive that gift. Right? We don't get to pick and choose. 
right? Our role is to receive the gift, steward the gifts that God gives us so that we can build up the body, which I think is the major theme of 1 Corinthians 14, right? In Corinth, they've lost track of the point of the gifts. They've made it all about spiritual languages and showcasing themselves, right? So Paul writes to them about order. He writes to them about intelligibility. But for us, that's not really the issue, right? We don't have people standing up in the middle of the service, like, saying stuff and distracting. Like, that is not our issue. I think our issue is a little different, right? In our culture, we often talk about attending church. You might ask someone, like, very normal to ask someone, you know, what church do you attend? Oh, I attend this church. You know, we attend other things in our culture. We attend uh, a concert. We attend a speaker series. We attend a 49ers game. At least not in a pandemic, but most of the time. And in all those examples, the things that we attend are for the most part as passive recipients enjoying the gifts of others. But if you think about it, like reread 1 Corinthians. Paul almost never talks about attending church. He talks about participation. And in some ways, I think this is one of the reasons that Corinth becomes what it is, because Paul has talked about participation so much that they have actually gotten to this place of over-participating and creating disorder, right? Everyone wants to speak and stand and contribute, and Paul's like, hey guys, the way you participate matters. I think if he was going to speak to us, he might actually talk to us about under-participation, right? Because as an American church, broadly, we focus on attending church, not as much participating in it. But Paul says, right, the church is a place where we offer our gifts, and then we receive from the gifts of others. It's a reciprocal community, right? This is how we build each other up. Now, we all know, right, for the last six months, we've been shocked by this international pandemic that has really affected all of our lives. And I think for many of us, we've gone into survival mode. We're just like, we're just trying to like get our life to make sense again. I mean, I get it, right? Our rhythms, our patterns have been incredibly disrupted. And the same is true for the church. This last week, I read a few different articles, a couple different surveys, Barbarna. One said that one in five churches in the next 18 months will likely no longer exist. I read a survey uh, that pastors, like almost 50% of pastors have at some point considered quitting the pastoral ministry in the last six months in the pandemic. Now, just for clarity's sake, like, that's not us. Like, our church is doing just fine. I am not throwing in the towel. But I do think it's stats like these that make us consider, like, how do we balance the realities of the difficulties of sort of doing life in a pandemic with the clear call of the New Testament towards participation? Right? That Paul is not calling us or inviting us to be attenders, but participants. Because one of the things that happens when we adopt this posture of attending versus participating is that then the staff right, and the key leaders and elders end up carrying more and more 
and they end up getting burnt out over time. Whereas Paul's model is everyone brings their gifts. And if everyone brings their gifts, if everyone participates, what happens is the load of the ministry of God in a local place is carried by everyone. Now, I think sometimes, I don't know for me, like I've thought, but this is a pandemic. Like, this is, has to be an exception to the rule. Like, do we really have to participate in this season? And yet, when I go back to first century Corinth, First century Corinth, there are two major famines occurring in southern Greece. In the ancient world, famines were incredibly dangerous times of social unrest, of struggle, when food literally becomes scarce. Like, remember at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all afraid about toilet paper? In the first century, they wouldn't have been worried about toilet paper. They would have been worried whether there was going to be any food at their market. And yet, Paul calls the men and women of the first century church, he calls them as followers of Jesus to use their gifts, to participate as an act of love, right? not simply to attend and hang out. We know you got a lot on your shoulders, but he calls them right, to give themselves to the body, to build up the church in love. And as I was thinking about this message this week, it reminded me of uh, when Jeannie and I and our family moved to Pacific Grove and we had a number of house projects to do. And all these people from the community like came and helped, right? Because I am like, you know, on a scale of one to 10 when it comes to handy around the house, like if 10 is handy and one is not, like I'm maybe a 1.5, right? Like give me a sledgehammer, I can knock down a wall, but everything else, like I need some, uh, someone else's help. Right, so someone came and did tiling, someone put in the toilet, someone did all kinds of work. I mean, it was just unreal how many skill sets came to our house. Now, I want you to imagine this. Imagine if rather than participating in that process, they just attended. So I came, and I'm trying to like, everyone's watching, and I'm just trying to like screw in the toilet or fix the wall, and people are laughing and seeing because I'm terrible at it. Like, imagine how awkward that would be. Imagine how unhelpful that would be. And yet, I think in some ways, this is the kind of posture we can slide into in church. Where you have, you know, the staff, a few key elders, a few key leaders coming together, trying to do things, but they're not good at everything. And so then things don't work as well as they should. Even in a pandemic, I do think this text challenges us in this sort of deep and awkward way to wonder what does it look like for us to participate right? in a culture that values or even just sort of assumes attendance as the primary way to understand church. What does it look like for us to gradually shift from a posture of attendance to a posture of participation? And it's clear in the scriptures that God has given every single Christian gifts to offer the body. And I guess I just wonder this morning, what does it look like for you, where you are today, given your limitations, family, stage of life, career, whatever, all those limitations, let's just assume God loves you. God recognizes and sees your limitations. What is God's invitation to you to participate in this season?
For some of us, it might be big. For some others, it might be small. But what does it look like to participate? Right? We are called to love. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, really focuses on the idea of building up the church. What is your role in that? I just want to take a moment just to pray that God would speak to us this morning. That God would reveal His heart to us. God, I just, I thank you for this space. I thank you for this, just this holy moment this morning when we can listen to your voice to us. And God, we know that you love us. We know that you see us. You see all the different struggles in our life. You see all the different responsibilities and obligations in our life. And you're not saying, hey, drop everything. <laughs> You know, just do church, you know, go become a full-time missionary, become a full-time pastor, whatever. Like, that is not God's invitation to all of us, right? But God, you are inviting us to hear your call, to hear your invitation, to hear your voice in this moment. You love us, Jesus. You want good things for us. You want us to be transformed into your image. God, you don't want us to just stay stuck doing the same thing we've always done. You want us to grow. God, would you speak to us? God, speak to us that we might hear your voice. We might know the gentle invitation of your voice and respond. If you are open to that, I just invite you to put your hands out as a sign to Jesus, a physical way of saying to Jesus, God, I want to hear your voice. If you are already doing all kinds of things in this body, hear the Lord's affirmation and kindness to you. Don't, don't pick up a thousand more things. God is not interested in us burning out. He is interested in us being transformed into his image. God, we ask that if you need any of us to reshuffle our lives, God, I just ask that you would speak clearly. You say that through the prophet, right, conviction comes, that you unveil what's going on in our hearts. God, we pray for that now. You would reveal what is going on in our hearts, that we may be faithful, that we might follow you with all of who we are. God, bring conviction that we all might fall on our face and worship you and declare to one another, God, that you were here this morning in the powerful and mighty and good name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It's my hope and prayer that this morning that God spoke to you through this text. Maybe even as we were just praying, God was like, kind of gave you a little nudge. I invite you, hear that. If you're unsure, like, I invite you, take some time this week. Invite God to look at your life with you, that you might be able to move things around, that you might be able to participate in his body and experience his presence and his joy as you use the gifts he's given you. Now, a few things just want to sort of throw out there. One, if we haven't met, please send me an email. I would love to connect with you. My name is Tony. Uh, if we have met, Let's hang out again. Uh, let's go for a walk or something. Send me an email. I'd love that. Uh, 
As far as connecting into the life of our body, uh, you can click up in the top right-hand corner of the screen. There's a little Get Connected piece. Uh, click in, ask any questions you want. Um, this morning, though, I want to take some time just to invite Angie Pack up uh, on stage. Uh, we are super excited to announce that Angie is going to be joining our staff team very part-time in this season. So excited to have her. She's just so gifted, so smart, uh, just incredible engine and energy. It's been so fun to work for the last few weeks together. But wanted to bring her up here to communicate with you guys that she's going to be directing uh, a lot of like compassion and justice and mercy initiatives in this season as we're all under this pandemic and trying to figure out how does the church respond faithfully. So I wanted Angie to come up here uh, so you could see her face. And if you have any questions, you could send her an email, um, angie at wellspringchurchpg.org. You could email her. But we also wanted to talk about a specific initiative that Angie has put a lot of energy and time into that we're really excited about. Uh, I don't know if you want to explain to them kind of where we're at and what we're thinking, and that'd be awesome. On staff as the director of Compassion Ministries, uh, Tony asked me what I was passionate about in terms of service, and um, one of the things that um, my heart really beats for is um, looking into our community and seeing what our needs are and how we can um, demonstrate Jesus to our community through um, service and acts of compassion and just kind of looking out and asking, okay, if Jesus we're physically here, what would he do? And um, he is here in us, and so we are to be him uh, within our community. Um, during the pandemic, especially as I've talked to a lot of other parents and uh, we ourselves uh, as a family have uh, done distance learning with our students, um, I, we've just talked a lot about, oh, I wonder what, you know, this is hard for us um, as, you know, a married couple um, with, you know, me being mostly at home, even, even in our, our own circumstance, our very privileged circumstance, we found that distance learning was, um, was a struggle. And so we were thinking about other people in our community for whom um, they don't have a lot of resources, maybe single parents or two working parents. And so uh, we decided that as, our, as a church community that we were gonna open up our facilities to start a distance learning center here at Wellspring. Um, so in the next few weeks, we are gonna be um, bringing on someone to proctor distance learning for um, students here in Pacific Grove who are in particular need of um, distance learning support. Basically, students who are not being otherwise educated right now during the pandemic because they just don't have the family resources to be able to handle that right now. Yeah, and we, we met with Principal Keller and like, he had a list of students, this is at Robert Down, a list of students, and he was just like, super excited about the possibility because he sees sort of, we kind of have an outside view, but he gets to see inside of like, oh, there really are families, even in a privileged environment like PG that are really, really struggling. Mm -hmm. And he was like, yes, please do this. Yeah. Um, so maybe you can tell them like how they might even connect, involve, contribute. Like we're talking about participation. I think you're an awesome example, right? I asked Angie like, so what are you passionate about? What are you gifted in? And then we sort of created a position that was around your gifting uh, that really met a need mm -hmm. in the body uh, right now. But maybe just share about how maybe people could participate yeah. uh, if God sort of invites them. Yeah, uh, we'll definitely need volunteers. Um, so if anybody is interested or passionate about this particular ministry of reaching families who are struggling with distance learning, uh, feel free to shoot me an email. 
Um, we will, I think our biggest needs right now are two, twofold. Um, one would be financial. So if you would like to contribute a gift financially and just specify that you want your gift to go towards uh, the distance learning center that we're starting, that would be terrific. And then the second would just be volunteer time. Um, we are gonna have one proctored person here with the students helping them, but if we could have a second person uh, volunteer and kind of maybe rotate through the week depending on um, who's interested and how many people we have interested, that would be a tremendous help. Um, and then lastly, we are, we're gonna be providing student meals through um, Pacific Grove Unified. Uh, however, delivering the meals to the um, Wellspring campus is also something that we potentially need. So yeah. that would be a third thing. Can you yeah. Finish? yeah, I think the only th other thing I would say is like, I think this is a really cool opportunity uh, for us actually to share with folks that would never come to our service, like a way they could contribute. Because uh, I think this is a broad, need that is recognized inside and outside the church, right? This isn't like, oh, only Christians care about this. Everyone cares about this. Yeah. I actually think this could be a really cool opportunity to see if folks outside the church would be open to funding this offering to the community, right? So the primary need is we're trying to fund a basically a proctored position. So someone can be there with the kids and help them on their assignments because they cannot get the help they need at home. Like, I, I just wonder, what does it look like to share this with folks we know? and see if maybe people outside the church are willing to help us fund this because this is for the common good of the whole community. Uh, I just think there's a cool sort of reframing of what church is and who Jesus is in this moment. Uh, so I think that would be the other thing I would throw out there. Uh, but with that said, super excited to have Angie on the team. Uh, it's incredible how much she's done. How many weeks have you been on? Like three? About three. Three weeks. It's like She's done like six months of work in three weeks, and she's just unbelievable, such a help. Um, super excited to see what else she creates. Also want to say, if you have awesome other ideas of like, this is a way to help, you feel like God is saying, I want to do this, talk to Angie. She would love to like figure out how to make more of these things spring up based on other people's energy and their initiative uh, and their gifting. So please reach out to her. And uh, with that said, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Maybe I'll just say a blessing over us and call it a morning. How's that? All right. So if you're at home, I just invite you, uh, if you feel comfortable, uh, to stand up. You know, put your feet on the ground. And just be open to receiving this blessing as if it was from God to you. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he may show you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. It's good to be with you guys this morning. See you soon.